Well, it's so good to be preaching back with you today, uh, recovered from camp, and God is continuing to be uh, just merciful to us, even though we've had some, some illness to follow up camp. Uh, by and large, I'm, I'm hearing good reports about people recovering, and so give, give thanks to the Lord for that. Also mindful that my, my days of, of being rector uh, are coming to an end, and my opportunities to preach to you as the rector at Servants of Christ are, are growing far and few between. But I'm grateful for the, today, and, and you're not going to get rid of me that easy. I'll be back often, hopefully, and uh, occasionally be asked to preach when I come. So, But it is, it is good to be with you this morning. And today I want to, I really felt led to uh, go back to Colossians, where I preached a few weeks ago. If you were here for that, you remember I talked about, I'm sure you you remember it. I mean, it's probably like right there in your heart and mind. You know, it's like, oh, of course, what you said, yeah, a few weeks ago, Alex, it's right there. But uh, I want to go back to the book of Colossians. And more and more as I study through Colossians, I am just so impressed with the word that the the Lord has given to Paul in this letter to write to us. And and so I want to spend some time with you there. In a bit of a breakdown, we were supposed to, you were supposed to have heard verses 1 to 4 in addition to 5. So if you've got that pew Bible in front of you, if you want to grab your Bible app, and I hope you have a Bible app because they're so easy to get a hold of, but you might want to open that up and and just look at the entire uh, first 17 verses of Colossians because that's where I want us to spend some time today. While you're doing that, I'll remind you of things I said a couple of weeks ago. Colossi, as Jamie properly pronounced it, being a history teacher, he knows how to say these things. Um, Colossi had been once a great city, but trade routes had changed. You know, sort of like the city of Waldo, you know, you know, once 301 was no longer a major trade route. Uh, Gainesville, well, RF 75 kind of grew up and other places kind of fell away. And so um, there are a lot of cities like that we could name around the country. So this is, a, this is a kind of a once great, but now kind of a backwaters, has been city in terms of the Roman Empire. It is a almost completely Gentile uh, city. It is uh, not a lot of Jewish believers there. Paul doesn't seem to be addressing uh, Judaism very much, although it may be alluded to in some of the false teachings, some of the, some of the things that are going on there that Paul is combating uh, Paul wants to make clear that Jesus is preeminent. He is above all things. All things hold together in Christ. Christ is the, the source of all things. And in him, the church, which is his body, is fulfilled and completed. And that's chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul is warning about these false teachings that have come in that are very, very base, very earthy. They're very much rooted in what to touch and what to take, taste and what to do. And, and it's very much about uh, rituals, if you will, or things that you're doing, sort of not engaging the mind, but in, in, in terms of what you're doing. And, and so you could read into that sort of maybe a, 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 some sort of a derivative of Judaism. But, but Paul makes lots of points about that, about, about this false teaching, and it's sort of it's centered on very earthy practices, why, which is why Paul will talk about earthly things and, uh, and things in Christ, and so we'll get to that in a second. It breaks out quite nicely, uh, these 17 verses, into three sections. The first four verses, which I 
want to insert just to remind you. I think it's important that we put Jesus at the center of it. And so the first four verses really talk about Jesus. Again, sort of emphasizing that, that, that he is preeminent above all things. And particularly our position in Christ. And then verses, the next verses that come up are verses 5 through 11. And those are the things that Paul wants us to put to death. Or another way to think about it would be to put off, to take off. And then lastly comes verses 12 through 17 where Paul reminds us of the things that we have to put on. Um, as, as I'm preparing to become a bishop, I realize there's a lot of accoutrements that go with it, lots of, a lot of costume changes, lots of different things. I'm having to learn the, the names of things that I didn't have before. I won't get to wear my, my comfortable alb and, and stole. I'll be wearing things called Rashid and Shamirs, believe it or not, that's the names of them, and copes and miters and all sorts of things. And you recognize this idea of sort of putting off certain things and putting on certain things. Um, I also think about Mr. Rogers. I grew up with Mr. Rogers. Some of you guys are old enough. And remember how he'd come in? And what would he do? The first thing he would do is he would, he would take off his, well, he'd put on his sweater, right? Take his jacket off, put on his sweater. And then he would come and he'd take off his dress shoes and put on his, his they weren't really tennis shoes, but they're like boat shoes, I guess. I don't know what you'd call them, but, um, but he would do that. And then he would begin to just shape the lives of all of us who are, are Gen X because he really, he really spoke to us and said some powerful things. But I just always remember that, that putting on and taking off, and putting on the shoes and taking off. And at the end of the day, he would reverse it and then he'd go out the back door, so. Well, that's what Paul wants us to focus on, the putting off and the putting on, but first he wants to make sure that we remember our position in Christ. Now just as I read through these scriptures and as you glance over them again, there's probably some words that caught your attention. Uh, They did for me, you know, um, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Uh, A few verses lower and Verse 5, he talks about what is earthly, put off to death what is earthly, and, and this sort of thing. And, and, and it leads me to a question that, that, that sort of like, well, Paul, are you, are you telling us that, that, that our humanness is a bad thing? And, and I think there's, there's been misconceptions throughout the history of the church that somehow we, are, we, are, we want to be, you know, heavenly minded and, and, and not earthly. And so, you know, I mean, people like, uh, famous people... Um, Right, like, like that person, right? Like St. Augustine, you know, I mean, Augustine actually thought that sexuality was debased and, 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 not, and not of God. And so he, it was really interesting. He had a, it was a, as many things as Augustine got right, I think he got that completely wrong. But, but there's, this, there's this, this taste for things that are human or earthly and somehow they're bad. And, and, but, but it's good to remember as Christians that, that God, you know, God incarnate, God came and took on humanity. Uh, the early heresies of the church try to separate Jesus' humanity from his divinity. You can't do it. He is fully God and fully man. He is endorsing our humanness. To be human is, is good. We bear the image of God. We are image bearers. So any sense of, of, of human rights and dignity springs from this recognition that, that God has put his stamp on us, that we bear his image, and therefore we have an, an innate 
dignity that must be respected. If you go back to the abolition movement, when you know, Wilberforce and others were fighting to end slavery, it was this, you know, it, that these are God bearers. These who have been slaves are bearing the image of God and need to be treated with dignity. And ultimately, England in the 1700s ended the slave trade because of the dignity. So, it, so when we hear that word earthy, it's, it's easy to think that it somehow it's to despise our humanness and to desire to be something spiritual. Like, like we're going to escape our humanness and be like angels in spirituality. And, and that's, that's actually a heresy of the church called Gnosticism. This idea that we're, we're trapped in material and that one day we'll be released and we'll just be spirits. And so that's why I, I, I kind of, I mean, it's not a big deal. I know, but, you know, when people talk about, you know, we, God's got another angel in heaven or that there's this idea that somehow we're, you know, going to sit on clouds. And this, this, the, the fear for me is that we misunderstand how redemptive God is towards our own humanity. I, I am learning a new diet, you know, clean eating. You know, you have a heart attack. It's amazing what a motivator will be for, for better food. And I, am, I have just fallen in love, and you guys are going to laugh, but I have fallen in love with avocados. Avocados were things that I just did not think I would like. It just doesn't look like something that Alex would like. They don't, they're not really popular in West Georgia, and so I just could resist to them for 55 years. They have become my best food. Like, I love them, especially on like a salad. Oh, my gosh tremendous there's nothing wrong with avocados there's nothing wrong with the with the beauty of the creation the song we sang is the is the is the as the processional this morning reminding us of God's good creation it's all that is that God has created is good however our humanity as well as all creation has been corrupted by sin we know this and it is that 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 corruption of humanity that Paul's actually talking about. And it can be confusing, but don't think he's despising everything about the earth. He's despising that earthliness in the sense that that which has been corrupted by sin. In fact, sin, the way a lot of theologians think about it, sin, the problem with sin at its root is that it, it, it tends to dehumanize us. We, we, we lose, we, we become so tarnished from that image bearer of God that we actually be, become controlled by our vices and those things which we give our lives to. And we actually, we devolve into a, a sub or a dehumanizing person. I think that's what's going on for Jesus in the gospel when, he, when, he, when this guy comes to him about his inheritance question and just wants his, wants his brother to split up the inheritance. Fair enough, but, but Jesus sees into the heart of this man and he can see that, that his life really is consumed by the accumulation of his possessions. And that his pursuit of getting what is his and all that he can get has actually grabbed hold of his heart. And Jesus says, the man who is rich but not towards God, that's where you're at. And that's why he tells this parable, right, he, about this guy who, who, who thinks he's going to build bigger barns and just live on his, you know, just kind of rest and relax. And God requires of his life, and there's nothing there. Sin will corrupt our humanity and actually cause us to become dehumanized. This is why 
The next word that catches my mind and as I walk through is this idea of the wrath of God in, in verse 6. What, what is this wrath of God about? Why, why is God being wrathful? Because we read just below that, that that we're to put away anger and wrath. Well, how come God can be wrathful, but I can't? Well, it's, 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 again, it's good to kind of unpack that for a second. The wrath of God is God's divine retribution, God's judgment, his holy righteous judgment against sin. We don't want to live in a world where God would just infinitely let sin and corruption go on and on. You don't want to live in a world like that. Now, we all want God to forgive us our sins, but we clearly want God to judge the things that we see that are corrupt in this world. That's that wrath of God. That is the judgment of God against, against the dehumanizing, corrupting sense of sin. Which is why God in his mercy, once Adam and Eve have, have sinned against him, have rebelled against his law, he cast them out of the garden lest they eat of the fruit of eternal life and continue perpetually devolve and become less and less human. A great example of this in, in the book C.S. Lewis wrote called The Great Divorce. And if you read that, it's a fictional work, but I think Lewis does such a great job of pulling some things out for us. And Lewis, he, when he talks about those who are becoming more and more hellish, which is sort of his thesis in this book, he says that they are almost like a vapor. They're, they're like living in the crack of a sidewalk and it's just a vapor that's hardly nothing there, and they're just consumed by their wants and desires. And it's, it's God's mercy to judge those things, and it's also his justice to bring an end to those who will not repent and turn to him and learn that what it means to be a redeemed creation, which is what Paul will talk about down in verse 9. Our wrath in contrast, it's the same word in the Greek, but our wrath is more like rage. Our revenge. That's wrong and you're going to pay the price. You know, it's, it's, it's me taking my, into my own hands when I see the person that's not disabled parking in the disabled spot. It's me desiring to go across that parking lot and tell that person one thing or another, right? And I feel very righteous about it. But I don't know all the facts, you know? which Jody reminds me of, which constrains me as well as the Holy Spirit. Very different. God's divine retribution versus our rage. Things above, not things of the earth, the last word that kind of jumps out at me. Again, this kind of idea, are we to, are we to think, uh, you know, only if, you know, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Remember that hymn? Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I mean, God is in the process of redeeming our humanity. It's a, it's a little bit of a caution for me. That, to, to, I, I don't think that's at all what Paul is talking about. Why is he calling us to think about the things that are above? Well, it's because of that very first point, our position in Christ. I said a few weeks ago, Paul wants to say that knowledge produces holiness. That the more we understand God, the more we will respond and grow in holiness, which will, in time, produce more knowledge. Knowledge produces holiness, produces more knowledge. So for Paul, he wants, to, he wants them to be clear on their possess, position, 
not their possession, but their position in Christ far and above. Which is why he says those things in the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds or seek the things that are above, on the, not on the things that are the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Paul is making sure they understand from a theological standpoint, their life is now hidden in Christ. And because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, then we spiritually are in Christ with the Father already. And that's the above that Paul wants to emphasize. Remember your position in Christ. Some people worry about when they die that they're, they'll just lay in this, in, you know, they'll lay in this state until the resurrection of the dead and, and that somehow, that somehow, you know, that we're going to wait for all the resurrection to come. And, and maybe that's not concerning for you. And if, if that wasn't a concern, now it is. I apologize for that. But, but there's, this, there's this worry. And, and I've always tried to explain it as to say, well, you know, once we die, we step out of the time-space continuum, and for God, it's always the eternal now. So even though it may seem like time for you, and you know, it just gets more and more confusing. You can see people getting a kind of a puzzled face. But this, I think, is a better thing to hold on to. Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, you're already with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And that's why he's having them to think above, not to forget about what's going on, on the earth, but to remember that positionally you're already in Christ. You're already there. You're more there than you are here. You just can't see it yet. Again, C.S. Lewis. Lewis says if we could see people in all of their glory in Christ, that we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Positionally, we're already in Christ. We're seated with him. Our life is hidden in Christ, he says in verse 3. And when your life appears with Christ, you will appear with him in glory. You'll be seen for the weight of who you are. What God has accomplished by grace in your life because you have responded to him by faith. Amen? That is who we are. That is who we are. So the minute you close your eyes in death, you're with him because you were already nine-tenths of the way there anyway. You just don't look like you're there yet from a human standpoint. But spiritually, we're positioned in Christ. That is so very essential to Paul. That is extremely essential because that frames everything that then he calls us to put off and put on for the rest of these verses. You see why I wanted to go back to do those things. We, we need to understand that this is not about you making greater effort, doing a better job of being a better Christian by, you know, not talking back to your parents and by being more honest on your taxes. It's not just you doing it better, willing yourself better. This is about coming to a recognition of where you are in Christ and what Christ has set you free from and what he is doing in your life. And responding to that holiness. N.T. Wright, theologian, Anglican bishop from England, Wright says that, that we don't understand who we are in Christ. We won't until we reach eternal glory. 
But he said that there are, there are countless people, Christians, who have become nameless to history, who have accomplished kingdom work that will never be seen in this world, but one day will be revealed for what it is. Just think about Paul. If Paul was rejected by the Greeks because he wasn't, he wasn't an, you know, articulate enough, he wasn't a, he wasn't a, a, a good enough, um, wasn't good enough at rhetoric, and so he's despised by the Greeks. He's despised by the Jews as being a traitor because Paul has now become a follower of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And so he's despised by the Greeks. He's despised by the Jews by the most part. He is he's living this, this life in between. He, he's having to, to, to you know, be a bivocational pastor. And, and yet we know from our perspective that Paul is the, the apostle to the Gentile world. He did more to evangelize the known world than, than any other person we have the name of because of his position in Christ. We can now see that. So having put that in perspective, quickly let me touch on these things that we're to put off and to put on. Paul says we're to put off those, if you will, indulgences of the flesh The difficulty is that though I am this new person in Christ, that old man is still there. You know, it's like the old saying, there are two dogs inside all of us. They're always fighting. And the guy says, well, which dog wins? And he goes, the dog that you feed. So are you going to feed the old man or are you going to feed the new man? I baptized a little girl named Diamond at camp, and I, we were talking, and I said, I said, well, why do you want to be baptized? She says, because I want my old self to be back there, and I want my new self to be out there. And I go, I, I love it. <laughs> yes, you got it. That's what we're, we're throwing off those indulgences. Again, those things which dehumanize us. And Paul is very emphatic here. He has two areas he touches on. There's lots of different sins. He doesn't really touch on pride, although he could. That would have been a helpful one as well. But he talks about sexuality. He talks about anger. It's two. And if you just look at that list for a moment, if you just kind of run through there, you know, putting off death, starting at verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. If you reverse that order, it's interesting because you see the pattern. I think you can probably relate to this. You, you begin with, with covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. You, you see something that you want that you don't have, and you desire it. That's what covetousness is. I wish I had my neighbors fill in the blank. And so it begins with a thought, which, which Paul says becomes idolatry, because we become to think that that's the thing that will make my life good. If I have that, you know, I used to think that Ford Raptor, you know, pickup truck, that would make my life complete, right? You know, preached about that, so now I'll never be able to have one. So, but, but, but you know, that's that idea, I'm, you know, I mean, but then that leads to, to, to covetousness. Then evil desire, we begin to have evil desires, wrong desires. What I would do if I got that which I desire. Backs up to passion, you begin to be, controlled by your passions it becomes to be the thing that consumes your thoughts then you begin to do things that are impure and ultimately you find yourself in sexual immorality 
These are not things to be played around with. This, these are things to be taken seriously. There's, there's no such thing as, as harmless sexual sin because this pattern builds. That's the danger of pornography, frankly, because it, it builds and it builds and it builds in the lives of human beings and ultimately will give way. There are men I've visited who have done horrible things, things they never imagined, and it begun, it began with harmless sexual sin, quote-unquote harmless. Paul says, for these things, the wrath of God, we've already kind of talked about that. Then he moves on to anger, which is interesting because those are the two that he talks about, anger, wrath, We've already talked about the word wrath, malice. That's, that's, that's basically when you want something bad to happen to somebody else. So I had to confess there's a football coach that I kind of had malice in my heart towards, but I've repented and all that. Um, joking, but not joking. Um, slander, where you actually begin to want to do something that brings harm to people, harming of their reputation. And obscene talk. Now, I'm not trying to discount the fact that we need to clean up our, our sailors' mouths, right? Our potty mouths. But I think what Paul is really getting at here is obscene talk where you begin to speak curses or damning things over people. Which, if you think about it, you know, when you really get in someone's face and you cuss them out, you are really, you're beginning to dehumanize them, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. The same is true with sexual sin. I mean, when we, when we give ourselves to sexual sin, the, the human being that we see becomes just an object of sex. We dehumanize the human person. And so in both these things, I believe you can see that, that Paul is really warning about these things which dehumanize, which corrupt our humanity, and which Paul says, because you've been put in the position with Christ, you need to put those things off. And here's the important thing. Because you're in Christ, you have the power to overcome them through Christ. Christ can give you the victory over these things in a way that you probably never could. You definitely never could before Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. But that's for a different sermon. The other thing I want to mention here is that Paul talks about all these different things. Verse 11, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There is a sense in which Paul wants to point out that by nature, our cultures tend to fuel these things, these corrupting practices. Barbarians were, were to the south. I've learned from a missiologist, and, and Scythians were, were to the north. They were the savages to the north. Not even really human, the savages, you know. And, uh, and then the barbarians to the south, you know, these unsophisticated peoples. You can fill in the blank in our own world. But Paul says in Christ, we need to remember that in our position in Christ, we've been brought to a different place. And so to be in Christ is to begin to attack and challenge those things that we've just taken as, you know, we've just taken. I, I was from Atlanta. I was raised that people that were from up north were 
you know, just not as good as us, you know, and, you know, kind of thing. And I'm quite certain that that same kind of a prejudice is, is passed down from north to south and, and east to west. You know, I'm a, I'm an Atlantic Ocean guy. I'm a eastern, you know, eastern seacoast. You know, I don't, you know, there's a reason those are flyover states, you know, and then California, let's not even get started with all that. But all those things begin to, to, to work in us, and particularly when it comes to these things like anger and malice and slander and obscene talk, they fuel that, and Paul is challenging that. Lastly, Paul says, not only put off, but put on. Put on as chosen ones, holy and beloved, this is, this is important because Paul is saying they, they have become, these, these backwater Gentiles have become the holy ones, the chosen ones. So that title, which was in the Old Testament reserved for the, for the Jewish people, has now been extended to even these people at Colossae. You, their position is in Christ. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And there Paul is talking about the self-sacrificing nature of God's love. If there is one characteristic of heaven, it is self-sacrificing love. Our willingness to lay down our rights for the needs of others. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you are called to. In one body, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love, I love this because Paul first wants us to say, before you get overwhelmed with, with the work of putting off and putting on, remember your position in Christ. And then secondly, stay connected to the body. Did you hear that, what Paul's talking about here in the end? When he's talking about putting all these things on, gentleness and kindness, etc., he brings it into the body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Paul is not simply saying, you individual Christian, be gentle and kind and patient. He is saying, be a part of the body of Christ and learn to do this one to another. Which is why he emphasizes the fact that we have to forgive each other. As I prepare to lay down the mantle, take off the stole, and I'm still processing it all, this is my prayer for servants of Christ. And can I just say, I, I, I pray that we are not naive to the devil's schemes. The devil will attempt to separate you and divide you and to cause you to not have forgiveness one for another or to not to be kind or gentle are patient with one another, to grow angry and to become slanderous and malice. He will do that. He will try to do that. So my plea and my prayer is that you stay together as the body, which you've done such a marvelous job of doing.
It comes back to keeping short accounts, not letting things linger, speaking the truth, not lies, as Paul says, and having charitable assumptions. If you can, you can condition your mind to say, Lord, I really don't believe this person meant to harm me. If that is your mindset as you go into a conversation, it will totally change the tune of how you try to reconcile and bring back community. And it's vitally important. It's vitally important. Be encouraged. Hold to the bonds of peace. Christ, who is our Lord, is at work in this body. And through the bumps and bruises and the awkwardness and the frustrations, continue to let the peace of Christ rule. And he who has begun a good work will see it to completion. I promise you that. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for, for the Apostle Paul, Lord, and his willingness to be so bold as to call the church at Colossae to, to live in holiness given their understanding of their place in Christ. Lord, will you continue to be merciful to the body of Christ here at, at Servants. And will you continue the, your work? May your Holy Spirit continue to bless and nurture relationships. And Father, I pray that we would, we would be on guard against the schemes of the enemy, the evil one, to divide and to cause confusion or misunderstanding. Lord, I, just, I ask your blessing upon Father James and the other clergy, Ramona and Jose and Vestry, as they continue to discern your will for the future of this parish. May you be glorified, Lord, and may your peace reign. Here in Jesus' name, amen.